Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with worsening relations with China following the spy balloon, compounded by concerns that China might arm Russia in its war against Ukraine. Then, adding to the strained relations, the FBI director announced yesterday that the coronavirus pandemic was likely caused by a lab leak. Then, topping this off last night, the House held a hearing of the new Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. The Bipartisan Committee heard testimony from H.R. McMaster, a former National Security Advisor in the Trump administration, who warned that President Xi Jinping's China poses a greater threat than the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Joining us is Joshua Schifferinson, a professor at the Center for International Security Studies at the University of Maryland and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. His research focuses on U.S. grand strategy, the durability of NATO, U.S. relations with its allies during and after the Cold War, and the rise of China. And he's the author of Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts. Then, starting today, 42 million Americans will lose $3 billion in monthly food stamp benefits, reducing the average food stamp benefit down to $6 per person per day, which is less than what many experts say is necessary for a healthy diet. With food prices rising, such as eggs, the cost of which has risen 60% this year, food banks will be hard-pressed to make up for the sudden shortfall as donations are drying up while demand is skyrocketing. Joining us is Ellen Vollinger, the Legal Director at the Food Research and Action Centre, an anti-hunger non-profit, to discuss this blow to low-income families and children as a result of a December deal in the Congress to avoid a Republican threat to shut down the government. Then finally we'll speak with Persis Yu, the Deputy Executive Director and Managing Counsel at the Student Borrower Protection Centre, who was previously a staff attorney at the National Consumer Law Centre and the Director of its Student Loan Borrower Assistance Project. She was in the Supreme Court for yesterday's oral arguments in cases brought by Republicans to kill the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness program, and we will discuss how this case should never have been before the court due to a lack of standing, and how it is the latest in this far-right court's power grab known as the major questions doctrine that usurps the expertise of government agencies as the court appoints itself the decision-maker on critical issues like climate policy and now the crushing student debt problem. And joining us now is Joshua Schifferinson, a professor at the Center for International Security Studies at the University of Maryland and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. His research focuses on U.S. grand strategy, the durability of NATO, U.S. relations with its allies during and after the Cold War, and the rise of China. And he's the author of Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joshua Schifferinson. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us. And Joshua, it's it's hard not to notice that tensions between the U.S. and China are growing on a number of fronts. We have the FBI yesterday, its it's director, saying that they believe that the coronavirus pandemic was caused by a lab accident at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And then we had on Tuesday evening in prime time a hearing of the Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, chaired by Republican Mike Gallagher, 
uh, who said this is not a polite tennis match, this is an existential struggle over what life will look like in the 21st century and the most fundamental freedoms are at stake. And then the co-chair, Representative Krishnamurti, he said over the last three decades, both Democrats and Republicans underestimated the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, and assumed that trade and investment would inevitably lead to democracy and greater security in the Indo-Pacific. Instead, the opposite happened. So what do you make of this new committee on the, the select committee on the Chinese Communist Party? They're just getting started, obviously. Yeah, they're they're just getting started. And, and as you can probably tell from the very disparate comments by Representative Gallagher, by the Democratic members, uh, by the testimonials, by H.R. Uh, McMaster and others, they're, they're kind of struggling to figure out the message they want to send on China. This was kind of a grasping at straws or throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks approach to a hearing. We have human rights, we have economic uh, security, we have the CCP, we have threats of fifth columns, we have economic uh, interdependence. This is a jack-of-all-trades kind of hearing that was really designed to try to figure out what the message might be. And in that sense, it's a rather unfocused committee with a rather unfocused mandate. But in terms of uh, what Krishnamurti is saying, is there anything to that notion that the idea of huge investments coming from the U.S. into China, which obviously helped create the Chinese miracle, was based upon the assumption uh, that uh, the more wealth and the stronger the economy and the more deeply entwined the two economies are, the less likely uh, there'd be any military friction. Um, well, I think I think there's a, that was certainly a major plank of U.S. thinking, but I think it's a it's a gloss to say that it was simply that that was the only assumption. After all, throughout the post Cold War era, and we have to remember U.S. Uh, engagement with China really took off after the Cold War, beforehand as well, but really took off after the Cold War. The U.S. was also emphasizing the importance of retaining allies like the U.S. Japan U.S. South Korean relationship, partly to hedge against China's rise. Also trying to maintain a very large military presence throughout East Asia, uh, partly to make, partly to hedge against China's rise, and indeed its entire post Cold War uh, grand strategy was focused on maintaining American dominance, American unipolarity, and so it's a bit of a gloss to say we had this rosy-eyed vision that economic interdependence and uh, would inevitably lead to a glorious era of U.S.-Chinese tensions. That was a major element of U.S. thinking, but it's a bit of revisionist history to claim that that was the only element of U.S. thinking. But there has been a perceptible change, has there not, in terms of leadership with uh, Xi Jinping? Oh, yes. There, there's no doubt in my mind that China has become more assertive uh, over the last 10 years. Likewise, the U.S. has become more assertive in pushing back against China's rise over the last 10 years. That, that That's absolutely true. And it's not surprising across history, we see that when one power tends to get stronger, it tends to assert itself in its neighborhood, leading to opposition by, to balancing by its neighbors and other concerned parties. That's exactly what we're seeing today. So you couldn't make a comparison then with the rethinking going on in Germany. The, the new chancellor, Scholz, calls it a turning point mm. in as much as they had that previous policy of Wandel durst handel of peace through trade. And now, of course, they're supplying arms to Ukraine and a major rethink going on in Germany. So is there a comparison there between what's happening in the U.S.? And I don't know, I don't know what's happening with the business community. We can talk right. about that. But let's start with that comparison. Is, is sure, it valid? I 
Well, it's valid to a to an extent. I, I think we want to distinguish between two phases of Germany, right? When the Russian invasion of Ukraine first kicked off about a year ago, that was the high point of Germany changing its focus. That's when you saw Germany boosting its defense spending or saying it was going to boost its defense spending, really uh, building inroads to arm Ukraine, talk about this geopolitical realignment and ending the idea of having a good relationship with Russia. So in that sense, it's very similar to what the U.S. has been doing for the last 10 years as China has seemed to become uh, more assertive. At the same time, because we've seen the limitations of Russian behavior in Ukraine, you know, Russia has not been performing well at all. And Ukraine has thankfully resisted much of Russia's uh, aggression. Germany has slowly backed away from much of, much of its reorientation. You know, defense spending is actually now projected to fall in real terms uh, over, the, over the next several years. In contrast, because China is a much more enduring competitor, we see this growing emphasis in the United States on balancing China. And we see similar efforts by Japan to build up its own military. So I think there are some parallels, but there are also some important distinctions that really uh, stem from the very distinct threats that China and Russia pose. Well, at least this new committee, even though it is called the Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, at least it's not a select committee on China. I mean, right. You recall that former President Trump made no distinction between the Chinese Communist government and the Chinese people in some of his more racist outbursts about the China flu and the Wuhan flu and the China virus and all that stuff, which stigmatized the entire Chinese people. And right. it would seem to be a much wiser policy to drive a wedge between the Chinese people and this Chinese government, which is the one of the more repressive governments on the planet, frankly. Oh, yes. I, I think it's very uh, important to draw a distinction between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people. I would just be a little cautious here about emphasizing too much the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, because after all, it's an outstanding question whether a different Chinese uh, government would actually be pursuing different courses of action than what the current Chinese government is doing. You know, and here I'll draw another analogy to Russia. During the post-Cold War era, we had a theory that the more liberal reformers there were in Russia, the better U.S.-Russian relations uh, would be. In fact, though, we saw tensions between the U.S. and Russia begin to spike even when people like Boris Yeltsin were in power and even before Vladimir Putin showed his you know, increasingly autocratic stripes. The point is, I, I think it's important to draw a distinction between the CCP and the Chinese people, but I want to be very cautious in assuming that a different Chinese regime would automatically equal a nicer, kinder, uh, more cooperative China. We should be careful in that thinking. So after this hearing on Tuesday evening in prime time, a vote was taken today by the U.S. House Foreign Affairs Committee uh, along party lines to give President Joe Biden the power to ban Chinese-owned social media app TikTok, which is very popular. I think at least 100 million Americans use it. And they voted uh, 24 to 16 to approve this measure to ban uh, the ByteDance-owned app based on, based on security concerns, that somehow the app has a backdoor that gets uh, information on... American users to the Chinese Communist Party. So let's begin with that premise. TikTok US says it doesn't ship the stuff to China. So what do we know about the possibility of a backdoor? Because we know that the Europeans have closed off 
and so is Canada. They ban TikTok in terms of any government institution. Well, I, I think it is true that we don't know what TikTok can or can't do. And certainly we have concerns from the Europeans and the Canadians, as you're alluding to, that there could be a backdoor to steal us users' data or otherwise uh, share secrets. I think the bigger concern, though, ought to be not TikTok per se, but just the ubiquity of social media and any number of apps on U.S. government uh, phones and enterprises. You know, there is a uh, an electronic security and an electronic security uh, risk with all of this. And so I think if an ad competition with China or any other country really heats up, the U.S. government is going to have to be much more strategic in terms of what sorts of information it stores on potentially vulnerable media devices and much more uh, careful in terms of what government officials share on social media and social media venues. So going back to Tuesday night's hearing on the Communist uh, Chinese Communist Party, the former National Security Advisor under Trump, H.R. McMaster, he argued that President Xi Jinping's China poses a greater threat than the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Now, that's really saying something. Yeah, I, I, I disagree with, Mr., with General McMaster on this one. I, I, let's remember here, the Soviet Union was on the verge of dominating industrialized Eurasia, right? It was on the verge of doing what Napoleon, Hitler, and others had never done before. Uh, it didn't have the ambition necessarily, but certainly had the capability by 1945, 1950. Um, Xi Jinping and China, thankfully, are not on the verge of doing so. There are large water moats that separate China from other important countries in East Asia. Nuclear weapons limit how far China can go with uh, both India having nuclear weapons, Pakistan, Russia uh, having nuclear weapons, and potentially Japan and South Korea as well. It's certainly the case that China is a much larger economy than the Soviet Union ever was, but it also faces large uh, internal con uh, internal limitations. And it isn't, despite all this talk of autocracy and uh, the Chinese push for an autocratic world, it doesn't really have a unifying ideology in the way that the Soviet Union had communism. So with all respect to General McMaster, I think his concern with the PRC is a little overblown. Certainly China is the largest competitor the U.S. has had in a generation and a half, uh, perhaps even two generations, but it is not yet a threat to the United States akin to the Soviet Union. What's happening then, Joshua, in terms of U.S. corporate investment? Because clearly massive amounts of money have been invested in China and contributed to China's economic rise and right. questions now about whether this was a, a wise choice in the long run, arising now. For example, right. uh, Apple, 90% of iPhones are made in China. There was recently some uh, labor unrest in, amongst the workers there. And I think Apple's now wondering whether they could start manufacturing them elsewhere. I think they've found another plant, maybe here in the US, I'm not sure. Right. But only a small percentage, like 10%, are being made. So Apple seems to be thinking, hedging about whether or not to pull out of China. So What's happening uh, with the U.S. business community in corporate America? Because they've invested a lot in China. Well, it, it, it's, it, it's obviously the case that the U.S. business community is sensitive to the growing risk of a U.S. government ban or limitation on the sorts of trade and economic investment that can happen in China. And there's a growing awareness, as we see in the Biden administration's push for national security to be a factor in economic investment choices, uh, the push for 
an indigenous uh, chips industry, there's a growing sense that there are limits, important limits to what the U.S. and other company and other uh, countries, companies can and should do in the PRC. So in that sense, the business community is hedging its bets because it should be hedging its bets. At the same time, we also have to remember that one of the reasons so many companies outsourced to China or shifted manufacturing capacity to China is that it was a very low cost manufacturer. And as um, political frictions enter the picture and as China develops, which is at the core of much of this conversation about China as a peer competitor, its ability, China's ability to be the low cost manufacturer is also degrading naturally. So, of course, U.S. business uh, and U.S. businesses are going to be looking to shift production at home to other countries that are equally low cost or closely low cost manufacturers. So I expect to see uh, some degree of American businesses pulling out of the Chinese market. I expect to see growing limitations in terms of what sorts of business is done in China. And I also expect a natural uh, globalization era search for low, pro low uh, cost production to drive American companies to leave the China market because U.S. Chinese frictions are, in, are just increasing the cost of doing business and companies want a low cost product. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Joshua, let's just look at the friction You've got the Chinese so-called spy balloon. We still don't know exactly what it was up, up to. They haven't told us what they got from the oceans off South Carolina. Then you've got the FBI now saying that they believe that the coronavirus pandemic was caused by a lab accident in China. You've got concerns expressed by the State Department that uh, China may start arming Russia to use in its war against Ukraine, which will be a huge change and uh, probably have real repercussions for Chinese business and exports to Europe, not to mention the United States. And now you've got this special hearing that's just beginning uh, in the House Foreign Affairs Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. A casual observer would might think that there's an escalation here, that there's a constituency here in the United States that's sort of ginning up a new Cold War. Do you have any suspicions in that regard? Well, suspicions is a strong term, I, I, but I do take your point. I think I agree with you that there is a growing punchiness in many U.S. political communities about China. This is a bipartisan effort, as the committee hearing uh, last night alluded to. And I do think, as you're, as you're suggesting, that some of these concerns are very overblown. Of course, the U.S. is naturally concerned about a spy balloon over the United States. But at the same time, China has the ability to have satellite reconnaissance over what happens in the United States. The FBI certainly said that they believe that the coronavirus emerged from a Wuhan lab, but they ranked this with low in, low probability. They're in low confidence, excuse me. Just moderate, a, moderate, they said. Right, moderate. And, and whereas the Energy Department, which was the other uh, recent change on this one, said low confidence, whereas I, most of the other intelligence community is either undecided or still thinks it is a natural transmission. Yes, the State Department is worried about China arming Russia. At the same time, China and Russia, as we pointed out over and over, have been growing their relationship partly because their mutual concerns over the United States and American partners. What I'm getting at is that we're in an era where because China has grown as a great power competitor, the mar U.S. sensitivities have gone up. This is particularly profound in uh, po the policymaking community because the U.S. for the last 30 years has really liked operating in a world where its uh, political agenda internationally is broadly unchallenged, where its geopolitical position is broadly unchallenged. And as uh, that position has become more and more under duress because of China's rise, 
the sensitivities in the U.S. to things that China seems to be doing are going up. And there is a constituency out there that uh, that is trying to gin up tensions for political uh, agendas of their own. And this recent committee hearing being so unfocused kind of alluded to the different constituencies that are pushing for competition between the U.S. and China to a certain degree. At the same time, though, the U.S. and China do have tensions between them. And it's natural in geopolitics that major powers tend to bump up against each other and compete. And so what we're seeing today is both uh, partly a, a result of natural geopolitical processes, but also partly a result of political communities in the U.S. trying to define what the stakes of the competition are. And I don't think we yet have clarity on how well this enterprise will go or what the future competition will look like. I, for one, am particularly reluctant to refer to China as the most dramatic competitor the U.S. has ever faced. I think many of the concerns we've raised with China so far are overblown. But we're in a transition moment in geopolitics, and we shouldn't be surprised that we're facing these intense debates. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, uh, Joshua Schifferson. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Joshua Schifferson, who's a professor at the Center for International Security Studies at the University of Maryland and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. His research focuses on U.S. grand strategy, the durability of NATO, U.S. relations with its allies during and after the Cold War, and the rise of China. And he's the author of Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how today 42 million Americans will have their food stamp benefits reduced to an average of $6 per person per day, which is less than what many experts say is necessary for a healthy diet. City, you've seen us, and then we come with the dust and we go with the wind. Green pastures of plenty from dry desert ground. From that grand Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ellen Vollinger, who is a legal director at the Food Research and Action Center. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ellen Vollinger. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And as of today, every household on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, or food stamps as they are normally referred to, will see their monthly benefits shrink by at least $95. And for larger families, they could be experiencing reductions of 250 or more dollars. So this is going to be a bit of a catastrophe for for a lot of Americans. How many? Thirty million children at least. It's down to six dollars a day, by the way. Prior to that, it was like nine dollars per person per day. My understanding is that six dollars per person per day uh, is not sufficient in terms of uh, basic nutrition, according to anti-hunger experts. So, wh- what's behind this? 
Well, I have to say that um, we are very worried about what the impact is going to be. And it is hitting most of the participants um, at this point this month. This is the first time that most of them have lost these benefits. In a few states, they ended before this month. But but uh, during the pandemic, in order to both um, assure that there would be um, some help for people to afford food during a period of very big disruption, a health crisis and a lot of disruption to the food system and to people's livelihoods, uh, Congress did allow there to be um, temporarily uh, larger benefits going out in for SNAP for households. And those have been a lifeline. And uh, they were in place in all parts of the country um, for, mo- for the most part until now. Uh, a few places ended them a little um, quicker than the federal government and the, ended them for everybody. But it is a quite significant difference in what households have for purchasing power at a grocery store. One of the reasons we know um, that they struggle is we um, have seen surveys of SNAP customers throughout COVID-19. And those SNAP customers uh, are low-income households. The reason that they're able to qualify for SNAP at all is because their incomes are very low. Uh, And because they have low incomes, these benefits are often the most important part of their budget for food. They're facing uh, very high costs for a lot of other uh, basics that they have to pay out of pocket for. So for shelter, for rent, for utilities, for daycare, uh, particularly for elderly and people with disabilities, they're often choosing between food and medicine um, in terms of what they can afford. And the boosted benefits were helping the SNAP households um, to see their benefits, their food benefits, be able to last longer through a month. Uh, But even so, they were not, um, there wasn't a lot left over, uh, but they were able to afford um, a greater variety of food, maybe, uh, you know, have the healthier items affordable within reach. Um, And right now they are going to be down to some very, very tough choices. Uh, They, many of them will probably try to seek some additional help uh, from the charitable sector, from food pantries and so forth. But we know that that sector has already been um, struggling to keep up with the requests that the community has, even before these benefits um, are hitting. And uh, we know that there'll be some effort by some state governments perhaps to supplement in a few places, but there's no way that the charitable sector and other efforts are gonna make up for the scope of this relief. For every one meal that a food bank can give out to somebody, SNAP provides nine times that. So you're talking right now about tens of millions of people um, and a a benefit that was, at least for a while, providing them with a greater measure of food affordability. And it's hitting at a very tough time as inflation is still something that the American consumer is grappling with. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, the coping that's going to go on, given how little of the gap will be able to be filled by charity and by anyone but the federal government, a lot of this hardship and coping is going to fall right on those households themselves. And they're going to have to be figuring out, can they cut back on the types of foods further? Can they cut back on the amount of food they're serving further? Um, We know that in these households, the adults do everything they can to protect against a child going hungry. So we 
we expect that there are going to be some adults who are going to anticipate cutting back on eating. It might mean they miss a meal or more than one during a day or during a week. Uh, at the worst end of the spectrum will be those households that can't figure out a way to stretch it all far enough to be able to um, safeguard the child from missing a meal. So again, a lot of this will be evident with long lines, we think, for probably requests for charitable assistance. But the real story on how people are going to cope or what they're grappling with, unfortunately, is probably not going to be public. It's going to be what they're doing in their kitchens and around their table and how they're um, trying to figure out how to make ends meet. Well, according to a December estimate from your organization, Ellen, the Food Research and Action Center, which is an anti-hunger nonprofit, it's the elderly Americans that are going to be hit hard as well. And their food stamps will go down to $23 a month. Yes. I mean, we hear about pensioners eating cat food. I mean, this is just, I just don't understand. My understanding is that this all came about, this cut of $3 billion out of the food stamp program or SNAP. It came about because of the brinksmanship of the Republicans over the debt ceiling negotiations. So for some reason or other, you know, the Republicans have some sort of sick mania to punish the poor, and this is what the Democrats had to agree to. They're the casualties of, of this kind of brinksmanship that's going on in Washington. Well, it is true that the context for the decision in December was about government funding and whether the government would be able to stay open. So we know it was a difficult environment, but there was no good reason for this to have been done in our view. Um, it, it should not have been done, and we opposed it at the time as not a smart choice, not something that um, that the country should be living with. Um, the reason that the benefits were boosted to begin with was they were to last for the duration of the pandemic public health emergency declaration. And that's still in place and will be in place until at least early May. Um, And ending them prematurely means that this cliff, hunger cliff that hits, is not only um, very steep, and it is steeper for elderly, especially if they're elderly who only qualify for the $23 minimum monthly benefit. Absolutely. That's who the steepest cliff will be for. But for all of those tens of millions that are affected in March, it is a very precipitous cliff because the decision to cut this off prematurely came at the very end of December. uh, And that means there has been not a lot of time for the states and community groups to communicate with the SNAP households about what is coming um, so that they, you know, have word about this and and don't find out for the first time when they're in the grocery line and think they have the money to pay for some of the things that are on the conveyor belt. And uh, they find out at checkout that this is this has been done. Uh, We do think um, that it is hard to understand also, given the reality that we think a lot of Americans, whether or not they're low income and whether or not they're on SNAP, The public seems to be fairly well aware that it's a struggle for a lot of people to be able to afford food right now. Last year, Purdue University was doing its monthly consumer attitudes about food survey. Um, And one of the policy questions that they were asking every month is whether or not uh, people who were surveyed agreed with a statement about continuing expanded SNAP benefit amounts 
and other expansions on either a permanent basis or beyond the pandemic rather than have it be temporary. And by large margins, uh, the responses were, yes, we agree with that statement. We think the expansions would be warranted on a longer term basis. Seven out of 10 that turned out when they looked at the breakdown uh, between people uh, in urban and rural um, responses, similar, similar responses. And even in a country that often has very stark ideological divides, there was some more commonality on this than, than I think some people might have expected, because in August of 2022, on that same question, they looked at the um, answers by uh, ideology and overwhelming support for the statement from liberals, very strong support for the statement from moderates. And even among conservatives, one out of almost one out of every two of the conservatives who responded, 48 percent, agreed with the statement about the expansions. Similarly, that month in August of 2022, uh, the University of Illinois poll found uh overwhelming support among the public for increasing benefit amounts in both SNAP and WIC, the Women, Infants, and Children program, uh, in part so that those customers could uh, better um, afford things given the price inflation that they were seeing in food at the time. So I think it's really at odds with the decision that was made in December is an unwise decision. It was really at odds with what the need is out in the country. But I think it also was at odds with what people at the community level are perceiving um, the situation in their communities, not just what the SNAP households are perceiving, but what ordinary Americans were perceiving. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Alan, we know that food prices have gone up. The price of eggs has gone up 60% in the last couple of months and food pantries and food banks are going to be overworked and donations are dropping off. So are we transitioning from a pandemic crisis to a hunger crisis? Well, you know, one thing that FRAC has been very vigilant about during this pandemic is uh, going into the pandemic situation. We already had a sizable hunger problem in the country, and we have been pointing that out. Uh, it was exacerbated, unfortunately not as exacerbated during the pandemic as it would have been had they not taken the measures to provide these extra benefits. But knowing that they were temporary measures and that on a permanent basis, the SNAP benefits are inadequate, we have been calling and champions in Congress have been calling all along for more permanent improvements to SNAP benefits to be put into place. And we're expecting those bills, many of which got a lot of support in the last Congress, to get reintroduced. And we are we are hopeful that um, policymakers will recognize that on a long-term basis, the country really can't afford to have the kind of high hunger uh, that, that could happen and would happen without taking some action. We know it costs the country a lot when there's hunger. It costs the people that are going hungry a lot in terms of their development, their health, their productivity. But that also shows up um, in other costs that the that the country bears um, a burden on. Uh, we know that when uh, people don't have enough purchasing power uh, for food, that that also shows up in the economy as not, um, you know, it's wasted money that could otherwise be fueling economic activity. For every dollar of SNAP benefits, 
the American economy is generating an additional $1.50 to $1.80 of economic activity. So for the health of the economy, certainly for people's individual health and community well-being, um, tackling hunger makes uh, absolute sense. And it's not it's not um, an unsolvable problem. In other words, we know we have the means and we have the tools to be able to address it. It really will come down to a question of political will and where where the country's going to place some priorities. Well, Ellen Dollinger, I thank you very much for joining us here today. No, thank you so much. And I've been speaking with Ellen Dollinger, who is the legal director at the Food Research and Action Center. We're going to take a brief station break and back speaking with someone who was in the Supreme Court yesterday for the oral arguments in cases brought by Republicans to kill the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness program. But it's on the table, the fire's cooking, and the farming babies will sleep. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Persis Yu, who is the Deputy Executive Director and Managing Counsel at the Student Borrower Protection Center, who was previously a staff attorney at the National Consumer Law Center and the director of its Student Loan Borrower Assistance Project. Welcome to Background Briefing, Persis Yu. Hello. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, yesterday you were in the Supreme Court for the oral arguments. And I guess the first question would be, should this case have even been in the Supreme Court? I mean, the real issue there seems to be standing. What did these Republican governors, what standing do they have? Standing, of course, meaning that a lawsuit must be based on an actual or imminent harm that is concrete and particularized to the plaintiff. So given that this seems like a political and ideological Republican effort to uh, simply attack a, a Biden administration program, is that correct in, the, in suggesting that this case shouldn't even be brought to the Supreme Court in the first place? I think that's exactly right. These cases are very clearly political. Um, and I think, in fact, the thing that I think is interesting to highlight is, in fact, a Republican-appointed district court judge threw out that case on the basis of standing. Um, and so the case has already been dismissed on the grounds of standing because a Republican-appointed judge found that it did not exist in the first place. So when the Eighth Circuit uh somewhat revived the injunction, they didn't really address that issue to begin with. But I think it is absolutely the right question to be asking. So how different is it then from the case which we're expecting at any time that a very ideological Texas federal judge was literally chosen by anti-abortion people because this guy is a, a zealous 
uh, anti-abortion, I'm almost, I was going to say fanatic, but uh, something along those lines. And he's poised, apparently, to uh, strike down the availability nationwide of an abortion drug, Mifepristone. And the people that brought the case literally chose him because of his ideology. So it's known as Supreme Court shopping, or in this case, federal court shopping. Is this another case of Supreme Court shopping? Yeah, I mean, I think we do see a lot of like court shopping in this case. And I think we actually see this in a number of different ways. If we remember back to when there were initially a bunch of cases filed, right, that wasn't just uh, the Nebraska case um, and this Brown case. In fact, there were um, roughly like 10 to 12 cases nationally filed. And so what we see is, is a political effort to, you know, if you will, throw the spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. Um, and so we found that in both the Fifth Circuit and the Eighth Circuit. Um, and certainly we have, again, a, a case in Texas where, you know, it is a case that most legal observers agree should not have survived the district court level, um, but yet is is here at the Supreme Court. So what seems to be at stake here, though, is, and because Chief Justice Roberts was pretty active in this case yesterday, and you were there. So describe what was going on. And some of the observers say that he's sort of asserting himself. There's been some suggestion that maybe Clarence Thomas has sort of taken over in league with the ultra-conservatives on the court. But give us your sense of what his role was, and in particular, the role of the Solicitor General in trying to argue against what Roberts was saying. Yeah. So, you know, there were, there were a couple of questions um, raised by the conservative justices with regards to fairness, for example, um, of the cancellation program. And I thought the Solicitor General did an excellent job highlighting why this program is necessary for student loan borrowers. Um, you know, Congress gave the Secretary of Education the, the ability to take necessary actions in a national emergency in order to protect the financial interests of student loan borrowers. Um, the Solicitor General, you know, highlighted that Congress can take this action with other, with other subsets of, of folks as well, but in this particular instance, and of course they have taken that action, right? We saw um, during COVID relief that lots of different, that relief was given in lots of different ways. Um, you know, we saw the PPP loans, for example. We saw benefits to the to the airlines. Um, so this is one of the ways in which Congress has given the administration the ability to take necessary actions in a national emergency. I thought she did an excellent job um, highlighting how important this relief is for student loan borrowers, discussing the economic basis um, for the program, the fact that Looking at data, uh, we know that when payments resume, without this relief, you know, very large numbers of borrowers are going to be become delinquent or default on their federal student loans, which has really catastrophic consequences for folks. So Congress has given the secretary this authority, and he's analyzed the data, and he has determined that this program is necessary. Well, apparently, there are so many people in default that it's sort of a kind of specious argument about saving money and it not being fair and all that stuff. The government's not going to get most of this money at any rate. So why not just do the 
fair and decent thing and let these people off the hook so that they're not their credit is not destroyed permanently no i think i think that's right and i think you know um one of the things that that folks highlighted is this you know big price tag of student debt cancellation which i think is really misleading in a number of different ways um first of all they they throw out this $400 billion number, which is not the number the administration um, calculated, importantly. But, but nonetheless, this $400 billion number, without the context of saying it's going to cost this much money over 30 years, right? Like that, it's over a long time horizon is the projection um, related to this $400 billion. But I think more importantly, you know, I, I, I'm very skeptical of the $400 billion number for the exact reason that, that you just stated. A lot of these student loan borrowers are not actually going to repay these loans. Um, first of all, we have a number of relief programs that exist. Uh, we heard about that in the in the arguments, right? Like there are relief programs to cancel people's loans when they have a disability that prevents them from being able to pay off their loans. When they attended a school that closed and they weren't able to get the the degree um, that was associated with the debt that they took out. You know, we just saw a lot of actions with borrower defense, for example. You know, there are a lot of times when loans get canceled. It's a very actual normal thing for the Department of Education to do. For lenders in general, it's, you know, writing off loans is a very normal thing. And so looking at that price tag is a little bit misleading um, because, yeah, a lot of folks aren't going to pay off those loans. Also, because we do have a lot of distress in the, in the federal student loan system. Um, you know, even before the pandemic, there was a lot of distress. So we know that there were a lot of folks who weren't going to be able to pay off those loans. And so when you think about the fact that without this program, that delinquency and default rate is going to spike, I think that raises real concerns about whether or not any of this debt is collectible. So let's talk a little bit about the Chief Justice and this uh, notion of the major questions doctrine, which led the Supreme Court to be making all kinds of important decisions, particularly on the coronavirus eviction moratorium and then emergency vaccinations, testing requirements, protecting the air quality through limits uh, to power plant emissions. So one of the things that came up during that ruling against the ability of the of the EPA to basically enforce the Clean, the clean Air Act, Justice Kagan, she was obviously in dissent because there's only three of them, she was in dissent to this major questions approach back then, which is what the Chief Justice is now invoking in this case. And she said, the court appoints itself instead of Congress or the expert agency, the decision maker on climate policy. I cannot think of many things more frightening. So isn't this really what's happening here, that the Supreme Court, this new ultra-conservative Supreme Court, is basically accruing enormous amount of power to itself. And they're making decisions that just completely usurp the experts in the government itself. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and I'll point to, um, you know, one of the one of the quotes that Kagan said yesterday, right, was we deal in congressional statutes every day that are really confusing. This is not one of them. Right. And I think that really highlights how this, you know, the HEROES Act was passed after September 11th. And then it was, you know, um, 
made permanent and expanded because it wanted to give the secretary the authority to take steps that were necessary to help student loan borrowers financially in the case of a national emergency. And, you know, I think Congress was, you know, very intentional on being broad about what that what that authority was, you know, that the secretary could waive or modify any provision of the Higher Education Act. And um, and so I think that is really what we see the secretary doing here. So, you know, obviously this is obviously this issue is very political um, and and certainly, I think that's what we see is the impetus behind these cases at its core. Um, and so if the court were to step in and stop this, I think it would really be a political decision, not a legal one. I think the law is, is very clearly on um, the secretary's side, as, as Kagan stated, um, and also the issue of standing. that There really was no harm to any of these plaintiffs. And so these cases just should never have been brought. So... Are we to conclude then, and at least one senator has been bringing this up for some time, and he seems to be a kind of a lonely voice, Senator Whitehouse, about who funded and brought these people to the Supreme Court and created this supermajority of ultra-conservatives. And it's all to do with dark money and one particular person, Leonard Leo. But the funding and the dark money, a lot of it's come from people like the Koch brothers. So going back to the Clean Air Act and the power plant ruling uh, where the conservatives were able to use this major questions doctrine to basically second-guess the EPA, that's serving the interests of plutocrats. So is this really a situation where, as White House has said, that the wealthy and powerful people who, who fund the Federalists and Leonard Leo, they can't sell their terrible ideas through the normal legislative executive branch process of our government. So they've targeted the Supreme Court as a way to do an end run. And is this something that's going on and that will continue to become a real power grab on the part of the Supreme Court? So I think one of the things that's very interesting um, about this case is, of course, then looking at the second case, the Brown versus Department of Education, because that's a case that is purportedly about these two student loan borrowers who weren't able to um, get the full amount of cancellation. But these borrowers were heavily recruited by the Jobs Creators Network, which is also a right-wing dark money organization. Um, who opposes cancellation. So I think we do see, you know, the dark money influence, the role of politics influencing at least these cases that are being brought. Um, And certainly it was the hope of these groups to try to find a court and try to have the courts make a political decision and not one that comports with the law. So is there anything that average citizens can do given that this court has now a supermajority on the right, apparently some court observers, and you were there, Persis, so may, maybe uh, you can tell us what do you, what you think about the possibility of peeling. You need to peel off two of the conservatives in any case, and that's a, that's a heavy lift. But there was a lot of uh, speculation that Amy Coney Barrett's questions about standing were indicated that she she's pretty skeptical about the standing issue and may 
vote along those lines. I think that's right. Um, yeah, I thought one of the things that was very interesting. So I have let me let me just start this again. I haven't given up hope that um, that this court is going to reach the right decision. Um, I think we did see skepticism on the side of, I mean, especially on the more liberal justices, but but also among the conservative justices on this issue of standing in particular. Um, Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett was very skeptical of the um, of the the state's claims that they have standing, that they have harm, that somehow they are able to, you know, um, claim the harm of Mohila as their own. Um, so I, I think that there is, I think that there is a path forward on cancellation where it could, you know, it, where the where the administration could come out on top here. Um, and so I, I think that that is worth highlighting. And I think, you know, I do think the Supreme Court cares about standing. Um, and and I, I hope that the court cares about its legitimacy as well. And so I think that this is an opportunity to, to see the legitimacy of, um, of the court and see them make the right decision, especially, you know, in particular with regards to standing. But I think, you know, it's not impossible on the, the merits of the case as well. So just in, in, the, in the last couple of minutes then, Persis you is there any other Supreme Court justice on the conservative side that could join with Amy Coney Barrett and the three liberals? So I think we also saw some skepticism um, amongst uh, Kavanaugh as well. And so I do think, I think that there is a path forward. I think there is a way that, you know, uh, that the administration is able to peel off, so to speak, um, more than one justice. And so, you know, I, I am hopeful that that the standing argument in particular prevails, right? This is a threshold question, and I think that's important, right? Because there are two questions, but one of them has to come first. And if they can't reach... Um, and if they cannot find that these plaintiffs have standing, then this case can't go forward. Um, and so I do think that there is enough skepticism amongst the conservative justices to, to see a possible way in which the administration prevails here. Well, in the case of Kavanaugh, of course, we know he had a very contentious confirmation hearing. But when he was nominated, he apparently had substantial personal debts, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and particularly in credit card debts, and those debts were suddenly paid off, and nobody knows who paid them off because there's no ethics requirement for the Supreme Court justices. So without suggesting there's some hypocrisy here, which certainly there's the appearance of it, do you think at the end of the day that's a problem, that these justices aren't necessarily in touch with the average 43 million students in debt who are indentured before they can even get a job, and yet, you know, somehow these guys can uh, get somehow miraculously their debts erased. So I think um, one of the things that I that I noticed here, and I think this gets to your point, um, is that I think that there is a misconception about who student loan borrowers are. Right? We saw, I think it was Roberts who talked about how, you know. Students who get four-year degrees are better off than their peers. And, and certainly in many cases, that may be true. However, that's actually not the situation of a lot of student loan borrowers. We have, you know, about 40% of the student loan population did not get a degree. 
um, with that debt. Um, you know, many more, if they got a degree, it wasn't a four-year degree. Um, and so I think one of the disconnects, and I think we see this in a lot of elite institutions, is that we don't see, you know, representation of the actual population. And I think, I think representation matters here, right? A lot of the borrowers that I've worked with over the last decade or so are not Ivy League educated, don't have wealthy families. And so I think there is a huge disconnect between the reality on the ground for student loan borrowers and a lot of the folks who are going to ultimately be making these decisions. Well, Persis Hugh, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Persis Yu, who's Deputy Executive Director and Managing Counsel at the Student Borrower Protection Center, who was previously a staff attorney at the National Consumer Law Center and the, the director of its Student Loan Borrower Assistance Project. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. One more light goes on